Hello, Ukomedia family. Vladimir Prognovsky here, and welcome to episode number 12 of the Ukomedia podcast, where I serve our Ukomedia family with weekly interviews from highly creative people. Today's guest is the one, the only, the legend, Chris Doe. Chris is an Emmy Award winning director, designer, strategist, and educator. He's the chief strategist and the CEO of Blind. Chris is also the founder of The Future, an online education platform that teaches the business of design to creative thinkers. Chris, welcome to the show and thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Vladimir. Happy to be here. Chris, I keep hearing so many great things about you from our Ukramedia community and from our past guests like David Carmen. And uh, I asked our community if they had any questions for you. And you know, the response was so unique in the sense that nobody had any questions. Rather, they all just wanted to tell me <laughs> how much they, they they wanted me to express how much they love and appreciate your work. So wow. I hope you feel the love. I hope you feel it. I'm feeling it right now. I, <laughs> I like that. That means I'm doing my job. Oh my gosh. The response was amazing. And by the way, before I forget, can I compliment you on something real quick? Sure. Yeah. I love your podcast intros. The Nick Campbell intro was like intense, man. You know, when I hear stories, I automatically visualize them in, in my mind. And it's kind of like I relive it with the storyteller. And man, I was on the edge of my seat when I was listening to the to the Nick Campbell intro. I was concerned for your safety there in the beginning. I was like, Chris, don't get in the cab. It's a trap. Don't do it. I was like, oh my gosh, he's in the cab. He's in the cab. Like, oh my gosh, should I start praying for him or something? I don't know. But man, I was just glad that you, when you finally made it to the party and you met Nick. And But man, that was so cool. I actually forgot that I was listening to the podcast. I was like, oh my gosh, Chris, no, no, no. <laughs> but anyway, I just want to complain on that. It was so unique. I've never heard that. anyone do it that way. And it was really cool. Well, sometimes my guess, there's an interesting story is how, how we meet. And sometimes it's just because somebody tells me, hey, you need to talk to this person. And if that's the case, then, then I, I try and uh, find the hook. But in, in this case, there was a real story and, and there's many decisions that you make along the way. And if you make a different decision, the outcome is totally different. Yeah. And even like the one you did with the School of Motion founder, that was a cool story that you told when you were on stage and you were asking the question. And, and I saw it, all the hands going down and it was really cool. I just really like that, you know, just making podcasts, know how hard it is. And that first mm -hmm. minute is everything. And that you had me on that first minute. I was like, okay, now I, I want to know who this is and why did they kept their hand all the way up? Anyway, right. so I just want to compliment that. And by the way, your podcasts are great. Lots of actionable advice. You're very transparent you. and you go deep. So I truly, truly, truly enjoy them. And everyone in our community, uh, I hear so many wonderful things. But before we go into talking about your journey, tell us a little about your personal life. What do you want to know, man? What's, tell me. What, what would be of interest to your audience? Well, I'm, I'm a father. I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old. I'm curious, how many children do you have? How long have you been married? Mm -hmm. Okay. I've been married now coming up on almost 20 years. and Wow. Like, Congratulations. Yeah. I've been married a long time. Coming up. All right. So... I have two boys. One is uh, 15. The other one is 12. Maybe I got that. Those are their ages mixed up here. Yeah, 15 and 12. And so one of them is about to go to junior high and like leave us for some time because he's going to boarding school and we're going to miss him terribly. And and the other guy, we, we've decided to do something radically different. Uh, we're going to pull him out of school and we want to say we're going to homeschool him. But I don't even know if I'm going along with that plan. We're really just going to take him wherever I go. I'm traveling more. I'm speaking at different events and doing workshops all around the world. And I was thinking, I miss my family first and foremost, but I was thinking what an interesting experience it would be for this little, this time that I have together with him as a 12 year old, just to be able to kind of see the world and, and wow. kind of meet the people that I meet. And I wonder how that'll impact him and what we can do together. You know, when, when dad is still okay to hang around with, you know, are your kids into design? 
yes, they're, they're both really into the the creative uh, field, I, I suppose. Like both of them like to draw and paint and do different things. I wouldn't say into design just yet because that requires topography, layout, right. understanding grids, but they all dabble in Photoshop and Illustrator. Do you let them play? I'm curious because a lot of people are, I guess they don't want screen time for their kids. And that's something that I'm dealing with right now. Is this mm-hmm. something that you are against yourself? You know, um, I, I go back and forth on this because I love technology. I encourage my audience and everybody in our community to embrace the future. And don't fight it. I, I think there's a natural phobia to towards new things like technology. I, I mean, I think there are some concerns about kids staring at a screen that's only a few feet away from them, hurting their eyes ultimately, because mm-hmm. we're not designed to be like that. So that's going to affect your vision. Uh, I, I think there are certain hooks that are built into games and social media that become very addictive. And so that can be a problem. But then you put that stuff aside and say, well, gosh, if the resources of the world, the information that's been gathered by everybody throughout the world was available at your fingertip, why would you deny your children that? Mm. And, and plus, my older boy, he's he's a little bit faster with technology. So he he's become like our unofficial IT person at the house. Like when I don't have time to deal with something, I just say, hey, can you figure out how to program this remote or change the settings on the Wi-Fi? And he'll figure it out. He's on tech support with DirecTV sometimes on the phone, working through and chatting with them <laughs> on his laptop. So that's pretty cool, right? And I don't want to create an, an artificial barrier, an impediment to learning these things because this is the way of the world now. No, that's so true. And you know, I grew up in a third world country and we didn't have access to technology. But I think that's like there should be like a balance because growing up we didn't have access to even toys. We we would oftentimes would go outside, would find like Coca Cola caps and would flip them, like drill little holes through them, and like make yo yos out of them. And then we'd take like papers and cut out cars and like draw roads. And so I like how that enhanced my creativity. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to create like the same balance for my kids between you know I don't want I'm the same way I don't want to completely. Uh, just take away technology from them. But at the same time, I want them to get creative. It's good for them to be bored and try to figure out, you know, try to entertain themselves with, more, I guess, simpler things in life, like just a pen and piece of paper and see what they can come up with. Right. I think that's fantastic. Well, let's dive in. I'm curious to find okay. out how did you get started in the world of design? How did you get in, even get into it? All the things you could mm. have done in life and you decided to go that route. Well, I've been doing a lot of soul searching and been thinking about the influences around me while I was growing up. Uh, and like you, I grew up poor in the United States. I, I was a, I'm a first generation immigrant myself. And so we didn't have a lot when we were growing up. Of course, you don't know that as a kid. You just know that that's your world. And you find things to do and you make stuff. And I've always been trying to like, like I would walk down to the creek and find bamboo poles, cut them up and try to carve something out of them. I'd make like mm-hmm. mini crossbows for my Star Wars action figures, accessories, if you will. I'd make little forts for them and, and build things out of styrofoam. So I love that aspect of it. And I didn't know that there was this thing called graphic design that I could actually do to, to a first generation immigrant. Everything feels like creativity is like starving artists, like the typical artists, like Van Gogh cutting off his ear, uh, living a life of poverty, barely having enough to make it. And there weren't a lot of examples of that in, in the world that I was living in. Uh, the only people that I saw who were working in the creative field were people that would work at the fairgrounds who were airbrushing lettering or would draw a caricature of you on, on the pier. And so I put that off as an option for, for, for me. But an interesting thing is my mom, who who works at who at that time worked at IBM as a technical drafter using computer-aided design tools, she's actually an artist and she comes from a family of artists. Everybody on my mom's side of the family is a singer, a poet, 
a painter or something like that. And they were forced to fit into the regular world doing regular jobs. And I, I could see that there was that conflict. Now, I wasn't aware of this at the time, but just looking back now, I can see it all very clearly. So my mom would encourage me by having me enter into the calendar competition to save energy to promote the idea of conservation for IBM every single year. Or when she saw an interest in the airbrushing stuff, she brought she bought me an airbrush kit and, and a compressor and just left it there. Like no questions asked. Like I didn't even ask for it. And she's not telling me to do anything with it. And so she was kind of silently encouraging me to do what it is that I want because she and like her brothers and sisters weren't able to do that. Oh, that's interesting. But you know, my parents, for example, coming from a third world country that just, they totally don't even understand the whole technological side of things. And so for them, when you say, Hey, I want to be a designer, I want to be a motion graphics artist or something like that. And they're like, you know, just get a real job. Like what you can't make, can you, you, I don't think you can make money doing something like that. I'm curious, how did your parents take that from you? Did they want you to become something else or is it, were they very welcoming of your decisions? I think, uh, they were conflicted. They, they wanted me to do something meaningful with my life, become a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, something, an engineer, software engineer, electrical engineer, something that they knew something about. There was a clear path there. And that's what they encouraged me to do, to go to a great school, preferably an Ivy League school, the dream of all first generation you know, immigrants to, to want their kids to have more than them and to achieve more, to be pillars of the community. And so when I decided I wanted to do design, I think my dad was really against it, but uh, my dad has a certain kind of philosophy in life. It's like he doesn't try to intervene or intercept your dreams too much. Like he would encourage you and then just be silent. That's like a silent protest. And for me, I was oblivious to all of it, so I didn't even see it as a protest. I just kept doing what it is that I wanted to do. Now, there was the very real concern about cost because going to a private arts school was very expensive. And my dad let me know. He said, you know, you could go to art center or you can go to Stanford, the exact same price, which, you know, made me realize the gravity of the decisions I was making. Now, now luckily, as a, a 17, 18 year old kid, I was oblivious to money. Like, that doesn't mean anything. It's such an abstract concept, right? Because if I had really, truly uh, understood the gravity of how much money was going to be spent studying design, then it might have hindered me. But it didn't because I was just stupid enough to think, well, whatever, it's just money. I'll earn it back. And if you don't do the math at the time, then you're okay. Now, somewhere along the way, I get into Art Center, and I remember this very clearly. I'm, I'm having a meeting, like with like it was like a mandatory all hands kind of on deck meeting with all the incoming students. Uh, the chair at that time was James Miho, and he gathers us all in, a, in the auditorium, and he said, "Look, here's the deal. I just want to lay it to you guys very straight. This is first term." He says to us, "Those of you that are lucky enough to get a job and have a good job." will make somewhere around $27,000 a year. This is what the data is telling us, 27K. And, and that right then and there, it hit me like a, a truck in the face. And I was thinking, oh my God, how am I going to pay off my loans? This is going to be a tall mountain to climb. And that's not even fully understanding like how much you keep after taxes, because this is after tax income that you're going to pay off your student loans. So right then and there, I realized something and I knew it that, I didn't choose to do design to make money. This was not about the pursuit of becoming rich. This wasn't about becoming like an investment banker or trading commodities or something like that. This is really about the pursuit of a passion and love. And that's going to have to be enough for me because obviously the money's not there. Well, that wasn't necessarily true. At that time, that was true. 
but ultimately things change and and opportunities start to open up and the world of design changes with with interactive media first cd-rom and then the world wide web and then motion design it's all, all starting to blossom and we're finding new ways to use design and design thinking to express it in markets that are going to value design at a pretty high level i'm curious just to hear your take on this you know a lot of people a lot of kids get in debt these days for education if you had to do it all over again, would you get in debt for over school? Would you find alternative ways, especially right now, what you guys are doing over the future? And I'm mm. just curious, do you think, would you recommend your kids go into school and get in debt? Okay, this is a tricky one, right? Um, it, de- it depends on the individual. So on the one hand, I have two boys. Uh, one of them is going to go to a boarding school on the East Coast, um, a, a very exclusive boarding school. And he's going to go down that path because that's what he wants. He, he chose the school and he's clearly academically driven. I can see him excelling at one of those Ivy League schools like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, something like that. That's what's in the cards for him. But my youngest, he's more free spirit. He's creative. He likes to dance, to sing, to draw and to make things. And he's very different. And I don't see him doing well in the kind of traditional academic realm. So for us, we looked at it and said, you know, if we have to spend somewhere between twenty to $40,000 a year for private school, even now as a, as a kid, would we be better off taking him around the world with us, hiring private tutors and teaching him ourselves? And I think the answer is yes. And I, I want him to learn how to learn. So right now, if your audience is listening to this and they're still in that position where they can make that decision, there are so many resources out there that are extremely competitive, much more efficient than what you would get at a traditional traditional school. I think what you have to do is you have to wake up and you have to be more cognizant and audit the school itself to look at the instructors. Who are they? What have they done? What is their teaching style? What has the graduating class produced and how consistent have they been in placing graduates into the field? And are they doing something relevant today? Those are a lot of questions to ask. And most likely the answer is going to come back unless you go to one of these top five, top 10 schools in the United States the answer probably is going to be no. So if I had to do it all over again today, knowing what I know, I'd probably still choose the school that I went to and I would probably audit my classes even more so and choose to jump ship when I felt like I had enough, like I learned enough and and the degree, as it turns out, doesn't matter at all. Hmm. Now, you're a business owner. What advice would you give to someone who's just about to graduate and get into the real world? What are some actionable things that they can do to land a better job? Okay. Before you get out of school, I highly encourage, and I think it should even be mandatory, that you get some practical training. Uh, It's called an internship. It could be a junior position. And it doesn't even matter that much what that position is, as long as you get your foot in the door. Because getting your foot in the door is the hardest thing to do. Once you get your foot in the door, start to flex your creative muscles. Do what you're asked to do, and then do a little bit more, and be super observant. And I'll I'll give you an example. Before I got to school, I had the, the incredible opportunity to work at an ad agency as an art director. Um, and so what I would do is I'd work the normal job, let's say nine to five-ish. And then when everybody went home, I stayed at the office. First, I didn't have anything to do. Young guy, you know, in my 20s. And I would just walk around the office and read magazines that were sitting on people's desks. Now, I'm not sure if I crossed some boundary there, but I loved information. And when I saw these beautiful magazines on creativity, on design, on technology, I would just sit there and read it and I would place it back very carefully where I found things, none worse for the wear. 
and I, I, I absorbed that and I would watch how other departments worked, how other teams worked to see if there's anything I can learn from them, either things not to do or things to do more of. So that's what I would encourage. You got to go out there, got to get some practical training. The next thing, very actionable, is to start to develop relationships with people today. You would be surprised at how accessible people are on social media. If you send an email, unfortunately, emails become the litter box of the world for all kinds of marketing and spam. And so it's very hard to stand out. And if you can craft a great subject line and an opening sentence, good, you might be able to get in there that somebody might read your email. But people are very accessible on Instagram and especially on Twitter. If you direct message and mention them, there's a good chance that they're going to see it and they're going to respond. So we want to build a relationship with people today and not the minute that you need something because it feels very transactional and people are put off by this. You're only talking to me now because you're desperate and you need a job. I can see through that. That's very clear to me. However, if you start six months prior to getting into school and you say, I really admire the work that you did on this project, uh, I'd like to ask this one question and ask a meaningful question. Don't ask one of those generic questions, right? Try to ask them something meaningful, engage with them. What happens there is then they start to think of you like, wow, this kid is really smart. They're asking all the good questions. They're making me think too. I got to keep my eye on this person. You build rapport. And so ultimately when you get out of school, it's like, hey, uh, I just want to let you know I'm graduating school. It would mean the world to me to be able to work there because of X, Y, and Z. So the relationship has been built. You're not sounding like desperate right. and you're not sounding needy. I, I, I would recommend those two things. What are some bad habits that you're seeing in young kids that are just now starting in the field? Hmm. That's very interesting. I, I think this is a, a pretty broad statement, so forgive me for, no for your audience. All right. Is a lot of people enter into the office place thinking they're hot stuff and they don't have that neuroplasticity or that malleability where they can adapt to the different rhythms and different styles and clients that the studio has. They, they become quite rigid as to saying like, I have this very particular style or approach. And when they're given an assignment that doesn't align with that, they have a hard time. I don't know if this is their habit, but one that's been crafted and honed quite well from their education. When you're in school, you work for yourself. Essentially, sometimes you listen to your professor, sometimes you do not. But you can get into the cycle of thinking you're always right and you know best. And so that's a moment for you to, I don't know if it's a if it's a habit or if it's an ego thing or something else, but we do see that from time to time. Of course, that doesn't work well with us because when we give you the client brief, you need to solve that problem. So you have to understand and empathize with who the client is and set aside your own creative tendencies and try to solve the problem for them. I'm curious to, to hear from you. What are some qualities you're looking in people that you're hiring? Okay, so I'll start at the bottom and I'll go to the top. The bottom, the minimum requirements is you know the software. If you don't know the software, the tools, it tells me you haven't put in the work and maybe you're just not that bright because it's not that hard to learn the tools. That's the minimum. Two, you can, you've demonstrated a consistent level of work across at minimum three pieces and it doesn't need to be much more than that. And then after that, I, it's important that you learn how to communicate with other people and to interact with other people because these are going to be your teammates. Again, at school, it's very much a solo endeavor, while at work, it's a collaborative team spirit. So you have to learn how to work with people. And then beyond that is to then 
I think look not only to meet the requirements, but how you can go beyond. If you want to be in a position of leadership, if you want to be recognized and rewarded, I think doing the minimum not to get noticed is not the way to do it. Try, push, and I don't mean push in an aggressive way, but push and do the work that you're asked to do and then trying to find something else to do. Now, this is kind of a selfish question just for myself because I'm a father also mm-hmm. just like you. And I, like I said, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. How do you balance work and personal life? Do you have any tips, tricks, advice? Yeah, this is a very common thing for the people who work in the creative industry because the lines blur as to when work stops and right. when it starts, right? Uh, because you could be at dinner and you come up with an idea for a problem that's been perplexing you for some time. You got to get that idea out because it might not be there when you're ready to work. So a lot of people preach uh, work-life balance, I preach something quite different. I, I preach work-life integration. And Errol Gersom, who teaches at Art Center, had this has this philosophy about it. He says, in your life, if you can imagine there's a box for your work, a box for your family, a box for your, your own personal life, and maybe your hobbies and interests, we all have different boxes, right? And he says that you, you try and fill each box, and then you stop, and then you go to another box. He says, well, if you look at it as a grid, like a a two by two grid. It says there's no restriction as to how much overlap there can be between work, family, hobby, life, interest, those kinds of things. He says the bigger the overlap, the happier you'll be and the more powerful you become. I really love that idea. I probably didn't do a very good job explaining it, but my life overlaps quite a bit. I'll give you an example. So aside from running a design studio, I also have the future as a platform where I create videos and I do podcasts. Now, my youngest, who just turned 12, he started a YouTube channel recently. And so now I'm talking to him, yeah, about how to shoot his videos. He has his own camera set up. So he's learning about f-stop, aperture, about focus, color correction. He migrated from using iMovie to using Premiere. And now he's thinking about how to shoot, how to frame things. So it's a long process. And in doing so, I have to teach him about doing his thumbnails correctly, using Photoshop and Illustrator how to do SEO. So he's learned how to name title and do keyword tagging and he's getting involved in all that stuff. So this is, there's a lot of overlap there. And so that's what I'm talking about. And my, my oldest son, uh, while he had interned for me the previous summer, he appeared on camera and he was helping me produce the show. Nice. And so there's a lot of overlap there. And so when we're traveling now, like I said, when I go out and speak, I want them to come with me. And they're very excited about this idea because it's really somebody else doing most of the, the planning for the travel. And they just get to show up and they get to to explore the city while dad is busy preparing for the talk. And and that's pretty cool. So there's a lot of overlap there. And I think that's the secret to, to happiness and finding that work-life integration. Yeah, I'm still working on that one. I haven't figured that one out. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard to come home and try to plug and... Like now I'm trying to not have notifications on my phone at all. I'm just trying to turn it off, plug it in and just forget about it. But then, I mean, there are many times where I've been playing with my kids. I was there with them, but in my mind I was somewhere else. And man, that guilt, shame and condemnation that comes with that. So I'm still looking for a good way of planning that. And so that's curious, especially you. You're so busy. You have a lot more going on than I do. And Mm. so, you know, somebody has, has a good idea for you here. So I don't know if you've read his book. Uh, Jim Rohn. I love Jim Rohn. Okay, seven strategies for for wealth and happiness. There's a there's a whole chapter in there about when you're at work, work really hard, and when you're at home, just be the best dad that you can be. And that's an interesting philosophy. Now, this was written a long time ago for a different time, 
but he says like when you're at work and you're trying to to rush to get finished so that because you're thinking about spending time with your kids then you don't do a great job at work then you go home and you spend time with the kids but you're worried that you didn't finish work so you're never where you're supposed to be i think if anything to understand your own limitations and to be fully present to who you are and what you're trying to do so if you have to work 12 hours work those freaking 12 hours and put your kids out of your mind and when you're at at home and you're tucking your kid in bed and reading them a bedtime story just be there not stop thinking about work because you're not really helping one another out. Oh, that's so hard to do though. No, I totally, I remember listening to Jim Rohn. He was talking about how if you play, play, if you work, work, don't mix the two. And it's so right. true, but we forget about those simple things and coming home from, from work, man, I just, it, it is really hard to unplug, but I was listening, talking to uh, John Bramblett. He's a blind uh, painter, beautiful, mm. just paints, beautiful, colorful wow. uh, paintings, just talented guy. I mean, been featured on Katie Couric and he was our previous guest. And it's interesting, something he said, because when he lost his eyesight at age 31 and he started painting at 30, when he turned 32, so it's kind of cool. But he was saying there was a lot of anxiety and stress when he thought about the past and the future. But when he lost himself, when he started painting, it's like he lost himself in the moment and he learned to live in the moment. So from that, when he would go out to dinner with friends and he said he, because he painted for like 14 hours a day, he learned how to be present. And that's a skill I feel like a lot of people in the 21st century, uh, especially first world, kind of losing that living in the now. Everybody's either in the past or in the future. And that's definitely a skill that I'm trying to uh, to master for sure. It's a difficult one to master for sure. There's something that I do and I have to, I don't have to, I shouldn't say I have to. I enjoy reading books, uh, especially now on business and philosophy. And so I'll stumble across a really great story. So now when I'm in bed with my son and if I'm tucking him in, instead of reading him one of those kids books, I will retell a story I just read from a business book. And he's uh, as fascinated by those as anything else. And I'm thinking, wow, we're going to elevate the dialogue we have. And it allows me to not only read read the books that I read, but also to share what I've learned with him, even though he's only 12. And I think that's pretty cool because he's like, okay, dad, so what's the next story? And we'll have this a discussion about what did we learn from this? What's a key takeaway? So that's what I talk about in terms of work-life integration. And of course, not all stories are appropriate, but when you come across one and, and it's wonderful and you share that. Yeah, and for me, especially like my kids are young. Yours, yours are a little older. I have like a mm-hmm. two or five year old. And man, when you come home and they want to play with their little toys, and it's so hard to get into their games because it's like, oh man, this is painful to play with little Thomas <laughs> the Choo Choo Train, and I'm like, I want to watch, don't want to watch their stuff. But lately, my my five year old's getting older, and uh, my twin brother and I were growing up playing soccer it was like a passion. And so now I just, I'm after work and we just uh, get a ball out and we go outside and we just, that, that became our bonding moment. So I want to incorporate more of that, something that I love. And he's starting to love because I love it. And it's something that can bring us together and I don't have to play those boring games with the Thomas the Choo Choo Train. Anyway. Mm. Well, I'll give you another, I'll give you another tip. Uh, it, I, when my, my children were much younger, um, I, I would do this thing. They would sit in my lap and I would do a drawing. And then I, I would then have them do a drawing. But sometimes I'll come home late or I'll have to leave early and I won't see them. And so what I'll do is I'll do a drawing. I'll, I'll first take a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11. I'll draw a line down the middle and then I'll do a drawing. And I say, I draw on the top and then I, I write, you draw. And I just leave it there on the oh, table. That's a great advice. So like tell so a we're, story. We're having, yeah. And we're, we're having this moment, even though we're not physically in the same space at the same time. So when the kid comes home, he's like, oh, Okay. So he does his drawing. And then when I come home, I say, look, I looked at your drawing. 
here's what I would recommend here. You know, I, I really like the way that you did this. Uh, I think you did a better job than me on this. And we, we can talk about line weights, line quality, uh, about creating dimension or the illusion of dimension. And so it's a wonderful thing that we get to do together. And that's our bonding moment. That's our soccer ball, if you will. That's great. I, I actually I hope there's no copyright on that one. I'm going to I'm going to steal that one from you, Chris. <laughs> Please do. No, I'm curious cuz you uh you're a business owner, you've done so much. I'm sure cuz everyone always probably looks at you and they probably think that uh, you don't have any personal failure. You probably just uh, everything you touch prospers and I'm sure to a large extent it's true. But share one painful personal failure as an artist. Something just to show our audience that look, you're just as human as everyone else that yeah, uh, you made mistakes. I'm curious to see to hear what it would be. Yeah, I've I'm gonna share two stories with you. One is one I think more people can relate to, but but two, it, it's a bigger pain that I feel. Earlier in my career, just getting the hang of using After Effects when we got a, a large job for for Nissan doing title design and animation, and I, I, I'm going to take full responsibility for this, but the client didn't approve the titles that were due the next morning until the night of. So we're talking about like nine, ten o'clock at night. Now, back in the day, rendering was an issue even for doing titles. Uh, it would take 20, 30 minutes to, to render a frame, especially if you have some of the more complex blurs that you apply. I know that's hard to fathom for some people where renders are almost instantaneous today. And I use uh, a bunch of machines uh, to distribute the network render. And some of the machines didn't have the proper fonts installed. And so I'm running out of sequences. You could imagine sometimes every third frame was bad. Sometimes every second frame was bad. And it was not enough time to re-render it. And I, I made the, the classic mistake, which was I, I went to sleep for an hour or two instead of shepherding my little computers and monitoring everything. <laughs> and those two hours compounded the problem. So when I got back up, to check the renders, I realized that there were a glitch every so many frames and it was like tearing my hair out. And this is one of those things where it had a real impact on the on the deadline and the client because they had scheduled a online session, which at that time cost a thousand dollars an hour in the morning. And I was panicked and and long story short, it was one of the most frustrating low points in my creative life. And I felt horrible, felt ashamed, guilty. Uh, I, I called the client, I texted her, I sent what I could when I could. So by the time I was done rendering everything, it was late at night. And so basically they had blown the entire day. Ouch. And that had a dramatic impact, obviously, on how the clients felt about my professionalism. It impacted their deadlines. I offered to pay for their session out of my own pocket. And I, I think that damaged the relationship in ways that I, I can never repair again. So that was a professional failure due to inexperience, poor time management, and perhaps fatigue, right? So that's that's one story I'm going to share that. And that one, it hurt. It hurt emotionally. It hurt in every way that I can imagine. But the biggest pain that I felt around being a creative professional is this, is that as you become a business owner and you have employees, you have a duty to make sure that the people who have earned their spot in your company to be able to pay them to make sure that there's enough money there. And we've had several times in our history where times got really tough and tight where I had to lay off people. And so I failed. It was a dereliction of duty there that I failed as a business owner to provide a job for those people that I cared so much about. Because when you work alongside people elbow to elbow and you guys sweat, bleed, and cry together, it becomes something 
more than just professional people working in space. You become some kind of hybrid family. And to say that you're no longer going to be in my family because in order for the family to survive, I have to let go of some of my relatives, so to speak. Hmm. How do you and, do and that? And that's really tough, man. Oh, it's brutal. It is brutal, I got to oh. tell you, because as if you can imagine now saying to somebody that you, you, you've spent the last couple of years with, and I would travel with my employees. We would eat lunch together. We would do all kinds of activities together. We'd hang out at each other's homes. It, it is rough. It is really, and it's emotionally draining. And it's, it used to take me weeks of mental preparation to have the discussion while we're just burning money. Hmm. Wow. That becomes really difficult, right? I get anxious just thinking and, about that. <laughs> yeah. And I would be haunted at night. I'd have like nightmares and just sitting there rehearsing in my mind, like, what am I going to say to this person? Oh, I don't like the way I said it. And I would just go over it, just this loop for a week. And so I would lose sleep. Uh, I would get bags under my eyes. And eventually I'd have to call a meeting and call them into a room and say, look, we're going through tough times, as you know. And as much as I like to, I can't have you here anymore. And I have to let you go. And I'm so sorry. And, and they would have a reaction. Some were understanding, empathetic. Some were angry. But they're entitled to their feelings. And, and I felt it. I felt bad. And, and, you, and through the history of this company, if you've been in business long enough, especially as we have, it's not always roses. It's not always about cracking the champagne and celebrating how much money you're tripping over. There are times when you lose money. And, and those are hard times. And we've had to do this three or four times in the history of this company. And it doesn't, it becomes a little easier to do, but it, it doesn't lessen the weight and the burden that you carry as a business owner to provide a good job and opportunity for the people who choose to work with you. Is there anything a business owner, a business owner can do to, I guess, maybe not prevent that from happening, but maybe prepare differently, maybe be more transparent ahead of time and let's say, hey, uh, we're still a startup. If there's ever a time, please don't take it personal. Is there anything like that maybe a business owner can do in the early stages mm -hmm. of the business? I think that would have to start when you hire people to say that we're in a field, there's a lot of volatility and that I, I want to hire you today. And that's not a guarantee. I need you to understand that. And I intend for you to be here as long as, as we both feel that we benefit from this relationship. But if you find a better opportunity or you're just not happy here, Let's be professional. Let's be transparent. Let's have a conversation about it. you. Let me know. And when things, if things turn south for us financially, I'll let you know too. Or if I feel like you're not performing up to a standard, I'll let you know. So you have as much time to, to deal with this as possible. Now, if, if I imagine myself as the person receiving this information as a young person, I'm like, yeah, I'm sure they have to say this is like their HR department, you know? Right. And you don't understand that, especially young people. They don't understand how precious opportunities even life is you don't realize like today could be your last day at the office so you you go about doing whatever it is you do now i've had this before where i've it's it's obvious to everybody like when the company isn't doing well because guess what we're not busy not a lot of freelancers in the house the em the parking lot is empty and you see this happen day after day week after week you have to become weary and and i think it, it's just a, a part of the the structure that for some reason they're not as attuned to what's going on but i do have conversations with people i say look it's been slow i need you guys to like like kick it into high gear help me do whatever it is that we can do to prevent what might be inevitable for us 
and they all nod. They all say yes. And then they, 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 you know, they take two hour lunches and they show up a little late. They leave a little early. So the outcome at that point is inevitable. And then when the hard news comes in, everybody is rather surprised to my surprise. Do you let your employees on the financial status of your company? Yeah, we tell them. We oh, tell them how much we're building. Wow. I tell them how profitable we are. I tell them uh, what profit margins we're gunning for. We, they know what the bids come in at. And they, they because a, a long time ago, I'm not saying since the beginning, I found that it's extremely liberating to share financial information with your ta- staff and team so they can make better decisions, be more accountable. It, it seems insane to, to have them be accountable for running their jobs profitably without having any metric or ideas to what they're supposed to hit. So they know what we bid the project at. Actually, they have a hand in determining that price. They know what the margins are supposed to be and how much they can spend. And and to to my delight, they they spend the money as if it were their own, which is, is incredible. So those are the kinds of people you want to have in your company. Now, there are other kinds of creatives who don't care at all. All they care about is in the now living for their portfolio so they'll spend the money because they only care about their their portfolio piece, not realizing that it's hurting the entire financial health of the company. There are those kinds of people as well. Was it hard for you being so transparent with your employees? Because I know you're from past interviews that I've heard of you that you're a very private person. Now it's it's kind of interesting to hear that you're that transparent for someone who is so private. Yeah. Okay. So let me let me clear up some things. It, it wasn't an easy thing to do because you wonder if I let people know how we're doing financially, what will they do with the information? Will they share it with other people? Will they leverage that to ask for more money? Will they spend and be indiscriminate about how they spend thinking we're... No, actually the truth is when you sit down and you explain to everybody as we did, like for every dollar that comes into the company, let me show you where all the, the nickels and the dimes and the pennies go. So let, let's just show them, right? So I would say, so here's a dollar, it's a pie chart and we, we try to make it interesting. So it's 7% of that, 7 cents of this dollar automatically goes straight to my reps. So now we're dealing with 93 cents. So this is how much it costs for us to be inside this building with utilities and the computers that we have. There goes 30 cents. Here's 40 cents out of that that goes to your salaries. So this this what we have left, 28.2% is what we have to play with. Okay. And now we take insurance and we do this. And so this is what we have. So when I tell you, you can't, and here's, oh, by the way, here's what we spend on pitches that we don't win, which nobody ever thinks about. Okay. And so if we go sideways on any one of these jobs, this thing starts to disappear really fast. That's why when we say you cannot spend more than X percentage on a job to produce it, you guys now understand because it's easy in your mind. Let's say that it's 30%. Let's say I say you can only spend 30 cents of every dollar for every project that comes in. They're thinking, Oh, Chris just made 70 cents on the dollar. So $100,000 job. He's taking that 70K, he's putting in his pocket, and he's going to buy a new car. And when in fact, that's the farthest from the truth. So my business coach taught me this. And and I, I phrase it this way. He said, absent an explanation, people form their own narrative as to what is going on. And the narrative is almost always worse than the truth. You're better off telling them the real story so they don't have to make up one. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they don't have to make up one. That's great. And this can be applied across the board, even like relationships. Yes. I think so. I mean, think about it. When, when um, I don't know, let, let's say there's some misunderstanding between you and your wife and almost all sitcoms and movies, rom-coms are set up like this. 
where it looks like you're getting on with somebody else, but they had something in their eye. But from across the room, it looks like I, I think Vladimir just went in there for a kiss or they had this really <laughs> touching moment, right? right? When somebody had an eyelash in their eye and you're just helping them out. And you, you think, oh, I think she saw me, but I just don't feel like I need to explain myself. And imagine all the miscommunication and assumptions that happen after that. You know, it's interesting you say that because I worked for Billy Graham and uh, as a web designer. And they're every, like literally all the walls, they're all glass. Nothing is private. And they did that on purpose, I guess they call it like the Billy Graham rule, that no one ever uh, could accuse you of anything. And they, they were very strategic about that. And over the years, I forget how many years, like 50, 70 or something years uh, in the ministry. And it's interesting, not a single accusation. So I guess mm-hmm. that that's one way of being transparent. Now, I want to ask you this question. I know we're coming up at the, at the end. I don't want to take too much of your time. You mentioned business coach a lot. Now, you mentioned that in several of your episodes I think one you mentioned with the School of Motion. With uh, I, I was mm-hmm. surprised to hear that Nick Campbell doesn't have one, uh, but he has one now. <laughs> <laughs> he has one now. <laughs> yeah, we share the same business coach. Oh, well, that's yeah. that's awesome. Oh, that's pretty cool. And your business coach, from what I hear, is a tough guy from an NFL player, former NFL player, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, something well, like that. How important is it? Because now I'm, I'm a business owner myself, and I hear everyone I talk to. It seems at least this is one guy I interviewed Doug, uh, previous podcast guest, and he said he had a business coach for three years, and his business been. Uh, growing big time how important is it to get a business coach now i didn't find much value in it before but now it's like i keep hearing it over and over and over what's your take on it well let's look at it like this um you, you played soccer right yes. or if you play tennis if you want to do better you get a tennis coach as i have if you want to do better at scoring for the sct you might get a, a tutor if, if you're feeling like uh, you've got dark thoughts in your mind you might go see a psychotherapist or you want to build upon your relationship with your wife, you might see a relationship therapist. So we're actually seeking coaches for everything that we do in our lives already. Now, when it comes to the business aspect, if, you, if you're running your own business, it, it's a very lonely endeavor. Like you're a sole proprietor, the word soul's in there, or you're a solopreneur. <laughs> and who do you turn to to see if what you're doing is right, correct, if you're making an ethical decision? how do you check yourself and and that is the dilemma that so many of us have and that's something that i've had like before i hired a business coach i was concerned that i need to let some people go or somebody's negotiating really hard should i give them the money i'll give you an example of how somebody with a little business insight can help you along the way so when we hire people i negotiate a salary right mm-hmm. and so then that becomes a benchmark for other people to come into the company so if I hire a designer and I pay them, say, 40 or 50K, let's say 50K, and some other designer out of school uh, graduates a year and a half later and I meet them and they're amazing. And I know they're not going to take that amount of money because there's a, a little bit of a bidding war there going for them. And I want them to work for us. Well, my business coach helped me understand something because I said, I can't offer them more than 50 because Sally will be upset at me or Mark will be upset at me. He goes, no, no, no. Deals are cut at the time in which they happen. That person had an obligation, as you did, to negotiate the best that they could for each party, and you came to an agreement. That's the agreement. Now, if you were to use that moving forward, the new person coming in that you really desperately need, who has different skills, and in in the creative world, not every person, regardless of your degree or time in the field, is a good measure of how good you are. If you need that person, that person is going to help you. You cut a different deal with that person. And that's what you have to do. Conversely, if somebody's much worse than than Sally, you pay them less and everybody gets cut a different deal. And so he helped me to understand that because otherwise 
I was artificially handcuffing myself at the negotiation table, trying to acquire the best team that I could given the amount of money we have. So it's dependent on how well we're doing financially at that moment in time. And obviously that changes all the time. And two, how badly do we need this person given our roster? If you're a superstar, but I have a team of 10 superstars, well, I don't need you that bad. So I'm going to negotiate, negotiate a little harder. And so if you go somewhere else, it's not going to hurt me as bad. And so these are the kind of conversations that you want to have with somebody that you can't have, unfortunately, with your spouse or partner because they don't understand the business dynamics and the complexities unless they're in the business themselves and they understand and they've been trained to think about business. So when I hired my business coach, he was able to do very transformative work in adjusting very small things, the way we phrase things, believe it or not, how we are pricing things. How often do you talk to him? Well, for a period of 10 years, I met with him every single week, almost without fail, unless I was sick or traveling for about an hour and a half to two hours every single week for 10 years. Wow, that's pretty cool. So often. And he would encourage me to call him anytime if I needed help. And I always felt guilty about calling him because I felt like I was going to wait for my time. Like when our day came up, I would, I would then ask the question. But every once in a while, I did have moments when I was either upset or sad about something. And I, w I would call him and he would say, okay, you've never abused this call time. So let's talk. And he would talk me off the ledge, if you will. Yeah, that's awesome. That's kind of like a mentor. Uh, well, for 10 years, you, you guys are probably best friends. By now. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he told me like, you're, you're kind of like my son at this point. Yeah, that's you know, awesome. and, and it goes way beyond a, a professional relationship. That's great. See, it's always good to have somebody. All my life, I had mentors and Thank God for mentors. Now, I don't want to, Chris, I don't want to hold up too much of your time. One last question. What are you the most excited about today? I'm very, very excited about the future. I don't talk about it like I'm talking about my company and also what's ahead of us because the future has been growing 300% year over year in terms of our revenue. And I'm excited that I think for the first time in my life, I, I feel like I am actually an artist of some sorts because I would always tell people designers are not artists. And I was very adamant about that. But in a way, creating the videos, the, the podcasts and the articles that we write, we're not accountable to anybody except for our audience, very much like an artist. Like I make something and if it hits a nerve, if it resonates with people, I feel like, yeah, I think they, they, they're getting what I want to say in that piece. Or if I do something that I think, oh, that felt kind of flat. All right, let me try again. So I'm not beholden to a committee, to a group of people or anybody else. I get to make all the decisions and it's wonderfully liberating. And, and now the financial, the business model is coming together so that there's actually something there. And I'm really excited about doing that because I imagine in the very near future, blind will exist merely kind of out of our pleasure. Like we only do work for clients because we kind of want to do it, not because we have to do it because there's no other means to make a living. And I hope that what will happen is clients will choose to work with us because they want us to talk about them in real time about the work that we're doing and the challenges that we're facing both on a personnel level on a creative level and a production level because they're going to get the exposure out of that so when we have an audience of hundreds of thousands hopefully a million at some point i think that's incredibly powerful that we can amplify their marketing efforts their branding efforts and getting the message out there across our channel and that's something that they're going to covet versus to move away from that's what really excites me that's great and how can people get in touch with you you can find us all over the internet, but 
the easiest way is to go to thefuture.com and the future is spelled without an E at the end. So it's future, but it's pronounced the future. Um, an, an easy way to remember that one of my favorite typefaces is Futura. Ah, there you so go. I can't call it Futura. So I just remove the A and it's the future and it, it works and we get a weird spelling because, you know, we're designers <laughs> and we get to, we get to do stuff like that. But you can also hit me up on social media. I'm at the Chris Doe. That's D-O. That's how you can get in touch with me. All right, Chris. Hey, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You were so generous. Thank you. It is my pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris Doe as much as I did. Chris was very generous with his time. If you have a minute, thank Chris Doe on Twitter. His Twitter handle is TheChrisDoe. Also, tell Chris Doe your favorite takeaway from this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoy what I have been doing. I don't ask for a lot, but please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcast. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. By the way, if you take time to leave a review on iTunes or on other platforms like Stitcher, and if you take a screenshot of it and send it to me at vladimir at ukumia.com, I will make sure to send you a small gift for your time. I'm curious to see how many people take me up on this. All the links and resources mentioned in this episode are available on our website at ukramedia.com slash 12. We are running behind on our Adobe After Effects Expressions course. As you already know, we wanted to launch it on our 31st birthday, which was April 16th. Obviously, that didn't happen. This course is probably the hardest thing we've ever done. Sergey has been working on this course for well over four months now. I will probably have Sergey on the podcast soon talking about the course, but definitely go to ukramedia.com slash expressions to sign up for the updates on this course. Also, join our online mentoring group on Facebook. It's absolutely free. Simply go to ukramedia.com slash community. We have almost 2,000 people in our group. It's a great online resource for those of you who are trying to grow as a creative. We have a bunch of talented people in this group. Thank you so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. I appreciate you, and I look forward to serving you in the next episode of the Ukramedia Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.